to me when I get to introduce my friends to my friends, and so I'm going to introduce you, GCA, collectively to my friend, Elder Greg Wren. Greg Wren is the uh, pastor of Saints Chapel in Mesquite, Texas, and every year you know that I go to a conference in Dallas, Texas. He is the presiding elder of that conference. Unfortunate circumstances brought him to uh, Middle Tennessee. He and I attended the funeral of a friend yesterday. But long as he was here, I thought we'd put him to work. And I am happy that Greg is here. He is a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary? Tyndale. Tyndale Theological Seminary. Why? Because you were in Dallas, so I thought it was Dallas. He is the rarest of birds. He is much like us. He is sovereign grace pre-everything, which is just very rare. The first time that I met Greg and we became friends, it was the first year that I taught at Main Street Baptist Church up in Lexington. And uh, being the young, full of vinegar sort of guy that I was, I uh, was talking about if, you, if you've read the Bible, if you say you've read the Bible, but you, you don't see in it that God is sovereign, one of two things is true about you. You either are lying and you haven't really read the Bible. This is all what I said from the pulpit up there. Or you're just not real bright because I was, you know, a, a young guy full of vinegar. And uh, so afterwards, I was in Elder Ward's study And this mountain of a man approached me and said, are those really the only two options? And we became instant friends. And we started talking theology. And we've been friends ever since. And I don't know how many years that is. Is that 15, 16 years? My goodness. So I I dearly love Greg Wren and his wife, Schwann, he, you'll see when he stands up here, he has sons that play football. When he gets up here, you'll know why. And uh, I'm just very, very glad that he finally got here to GCA. So Steve is going to lead you in one more song. And then Greg Wren will stand here and preach to us this morning. I've already instructed him that he has to wear the leash so that the internet folks can hear him. And, uh, And I am always happy when I can leave the congregation of GCA in good hands. And you're in good hands this morning. So, Steve? Thank you. 
made, I will rejoice and be glad in it. I give honor to God, my Father, to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to the Holy Spirit, who is my ever-present help. All three persons is my God. To all of you who are here, to Elder McClarty and Sister McClarty. <laughs> Finally, I've made it to GCA. <laughs> Long time coming, but finally the Lord has given me the grace to be here with you all. And if you haven't noticed, you'll probably realize that Jim and I are twins. <laughs> I mean, just look at us, you know. <laughs> twins spiritually, that is. Way different in height. Way different in weight. Way different in skin color. <laughs> but twins, theologically, and like identical twins in the physical, you really have to get to know them in order to know the differences in them. And so we've discovered over the many years of friendship that we do have small differences, but they make for good fellowship because we can talk and discuss the Bible and sharpen each other according to the word of God. And so, um, again, he announced that uh, in the introduction that I minister, I pastor at the Saints Chapel in Mesquite, Texas, and we bring you greetings from there. Uh, just an exciting time, just an exciting time to, to be with you all and to do the work of the Lord. Let us turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. And we will read verses 7 through 12. Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 7, says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. May the Lord have blessings on the readers, hearers, and doers of his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time. We thank you for safe travel on land and in the air. And we thank you for gathering us here today to honor and glorify your name. We thank you for everything that has taken place, the praise and worship, scripture reading, the prayers. We pray and hope that it was all to the honor and glory of your name. Now, Father, you have me here before your people, and I realize it's not my hour but your hour, not my words but your words. Speak through me that they may hear what your word is saying, that they may be edified, that ears may be unstopped and hearts may be softened, that eyes may be open, that they will be drawn closer to you as a result of what your word says. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. It has been said that prayer is the activity that 
characterizes genuine believers in Jesus Christ. Theology has historically been called by those of the past queen of sciences or the queen of sciences. And if this is appropriate, then prayer might well be called the queen of experiences. John Calvin, in a sermon on 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, wrote, The principal exercise which the children of God have is to pray. For in this way they give true proof of their faith. End quote. There are some people who believe that the doctrines of grace, which is centered on the absolute sovereignty of God, are the kind of doctrines that lead to inactivity, that is, lack of witnessing, lack of prayer, to lack of diligence in the Christian life. However, his history says that's a lie because whatever one may think of those who believe strongly in God's sovereignty and predestination, men in the past and even in the present has proven that these doctrines did not and does not affect the place of prayer in the believer's life. In fact, in the true believer's world, the sovereignty of God is the strongest incentive to pray. It's the strongest incentive to prayer because it assures us that the things that we ask of God are well within his power to perform. So I am convinced, so far as the doctrine of the sovereignty of God is concerned, it is the greatest incentive to bringing our petitions to God. The facts are that prayer is the very breath of the regenerate soul. And when the Lord Jesus directed Ananias to Paul after he had encountered Paul on the Damascus road, he gave a brief characterization of the new creature in Christ, which unavoidably marked out the true believer in Christ. And the clause that the Lord used in order to mark Paul out as a new creature was the clause, behold, he prays. So it is characteristic of the true believer in Jesus Christ to pray. Now, when I say pray, I do not speak of the kinds of prayers that people make when they pray to other gods other than the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is entirely possible for a person to pray to a God in the skies and not pray truly because the only prayer that is a true prayer is the prayer addressed to the true God that is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. All other gods in the language of the Bible are no gods at all. But it is characteristic of the true believer in Jesus Christ that he or she expresses their faith in prayer. Where there is life, there is breath. And where there is spiritual life, there are spiritual breathings. Because prayer is the speech of the soul to God. And if you're listening to this message and you've never really come to believe in the Lord Jesus, all of the prayers that you may have offered to an unknown God are petitions that the true God does not answer. But prayers that are addressed to God through our Lord Jesus Christ are petitions that he does answer. So the true mark of a believing soul is that he or she prays. It is therefore surprising and sad to hear that some professing Christians are not sure that they even have time today to pray. Some feel that there are more important things that they can do with their time. That is until they get sick or in trouble or something tragic happens. With this attitude of prayer, it's not surprising to find that ministries and spiritual lives of professing Christians are in deep decline or non-existent at all. Surprisingly, prayer is really the only subject on the Sermon of the Mount that the Lord Jesus has discussed twice. And that may be the key to the value that he placed upon the need to pray. One man has pointed out that Jesus never taught his disciples how to preach. 
only how to pray. He did not speak much of what was needed to preach well, but he spoke much about praying well. To know how to speak to God is more important than knowing how to speak to man. It is not power with men, but power with God. That is the first thing. Jesus loves to teach us to pray. Someone else has pointed out to my amazement that all theological institutions have courses on public speaking and homiletics. But so far as it is known, there is not a single theological institution of seminary status in the whole of the Western world that has a required course on prayer. Or the doctrine of praying. According to the attention Jesus gives prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, I would say this is a great neglect so far as the Christian church is concerned. No doubt the need of prayer is the reason that the Lord Jesus brings up the subject at two points in what is called the Lord's Prayer or really the Disciples Prayer. And right here, the passage that we just read, it certainly is appropriate in this context because the force of this sermon is to define the disciples, to show the characteristics of the life and ministry of those who were to be with the Lord Jesus. Not only to define them, but to show that they are anticipators Of the kingdom of God, the coming kingdom of God. They were his disciples and therefore he intended to bring out the characteristics of the life that is to guide them as they minister under him, awaiting the coming of the kingdom of God upon the earth. And so prayer is obviously one of the great things that the disciples, the believers must learn and also practice. In the very next section. Verses 13 and 14, Jesus speaks of entering in at the narrow gate or turning aside to the broad way. And surely when we think about entrance into life, prayer is of the greatest significance. Now, Jesus just said previously in verse six, do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine. It's very difficult for us. As human beings to know with any sense of assurance who are the dogs and who are the swine. That's very difficult. It would be natural for us to say, how can we possibly know who are the dogs and who are the swine? Well, the answer is through prayer. Prayer is the essential necessity for making biblical judgments. So I'm not surprised then that the subject appears here. And so let's look then, first of all, at the exhortation to prayer contained in verse seven. The connection of this section with the preceding section is where will I ever get the wisdom necessary to exercise judgment in a godly that is righteous way? Now, this exhortation in the seventh verse is contained in the present tense and and, and in the case of each, the imperative mood. It's a command. Ask, seek, knock. In fact, they could be rendered, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. That lays some stress upon persistence in prayer. Notice also we read, there is, or as we read, there is a rising intensity in the verse. Ask. Then rising to further intensity, be seeking and finally keep on knocking. As one of the students of the Bible has said, if we don't receive by asking, then let us seek. And if we don't receive by seeking, then let us knock. You know, this asking implies a sense of humility and a recognition of need. And one gains here, I believe, an inkling of the reason for the divine institution of prayer as the means for the realization of spiritual and other blessings. Through prayer, two great hindrances to the spiritual life are fault. And the first is arrogant self-confidence. 
The exhortation by the Lord Jesus to pray is an attack on the arrogance of self-confidence. And the arrogance of self-confidence suggests that we really do not need any divine enablement in life. This is really a kind of practical Pelagianism. This attitude that once we have been converted and have come to know the Lord Jesus, it is no longer necessary for us to pray. It really introduces us to a system of works religion. Pelagius was a British monk who came to Rome in the year 401 and preached there for about eight or nine years. He was a very popular preacher and the originator of the doctrine of Pelagianism. Pelagianism is simply an outgrowth of legalism. Pelagius and his followers were men who believed that it was possible for men of his free will to be liberated from God. They taught men were not affected by original sin. Uh, We were all born in the same status that Adam was when he was in the garden pre-fall. And we each have within ourselves the power to do the will of God. This is what they say. Obviously, they say if God lays upon us the obligation to do certain things, we must have the power within ourselves to do. them. In other words, he wouldn't ask you to do anything that you didn't have the ability to do. And so this had a very false appeal to the people of Rome in his day. And he preached with great fervor and with great popularity. Proclaiming that if God has called us to do something, then surely we have the power to do it. But little understanding the fact that often God tells us to do certain things which are impossible for us to do. In order that within ourselves, we may discover that we do not have any power to do them and must, as a result, totally depend on him. And when this issue reached ahead in the Reformation, many years went on and it reached ahead in the Reformation with Erasmus and Luther struggling over this. It was Luther who understood and Erasmus who did not. So the idea that we can, once we have come to know Jesus Christ as Savior, we can pretty well live independently of the power of God in our lives is attacked head on by the exhortations of the Lord Jesus who who taught his disciples to pray and how to pray. The second thing that prayer does is fight lazy inactivity. A too common condition in the lives of believers, which often results in a false kind of quietism. Many who know my preaching and Jim certainly knows it or else I wouldn't be here. <laughs> but many who know my preaching know that there is all, that, that there always precedes a message which has been grounded, I hope, in the sovereignty of God. I personally, along with others, believe that God is absolutely sovereign in all of the affairs of men. And we believe that he is working out his purposes and will accomplish his purposes and cannot be frustrated in the accomplishment of them, that he is absolutely sovereign. Sometimes when individuals come to an understanding of those great doctrines of uh, of the grace of God, how he saves us in wonderful grace and how he keeps us and sanctifies us and how he will ultimately glorify us through his marvelous grace. We somehow take this doctrine and twist it to mean that as a result of all of this, we have no responsibility whatsoever. We have no responsibility to listen to the exhortations of the word of God and seek under the power of God to perform those exhortations. Well, prayer is an effective Way to fight that false extreme emphasis on the sovereignty of God that overlooks human responsibility. We do have human responsibility. We are responsible to read the precepts of the word of God. And we're not only responsible to read them, but we are responsible to obey them. That's our responsibility. But we do not 
In our explanation of the responsibility of man seek to water down the sovereignty of God so that it means nothing. We as Christians believe that God is working out his purpose and he will work out his purposes uh, to a successful conclusion. He is the sovereign God, but we are responsible. And this is evidenced by the fact that we are told to pray. We are told to ask continuously. We are told to seek constantly. We are told to knock relentlessly. We should, according to a church father, with a holy conspiracy, besiege heaven. Another believer in the sovereignty of God said, all three of these commands presuppose faith. A man who does not believe will not ask. A man who does not have faith will not seek. And one who does not have confidence in God will not go on knocking. These are inescapable issues of faith. And the man who asks and seeks and knocks in the name of the Lord Jesus is showing his faith in God through prayer. And this faith is the thing that makes the prayers of the saints different from the prayers of the world. It makes them warm and fervent. It's been said that cold prayers always freeze before they reach heaven. Cold prayers do not characterize biblical praying. They characterize mimicking. And, 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 and in our prayer life, if we pray in cold, formal, liturgical, vain repetition, it's not biblical praying. Now, a question could be asked at this point. How is it not vain repetition if we keep on asking? If we keep on seeking and knocking, how is that not vain repetition? There's a difference between vain repetition and persistence. And there is also a close relationship between the two. There are two kinds of repetition. There's the repetition of persistence. And we are urged in scripture to persistent prayer, continued uh, persistent prayers. And then there is the repetition of formality. The repetition of formality is vain repetition. The kind of repetition in which the Lord Jesus spoke about in Matthew chapter six, verse seven, when he says, and when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathens do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Now, to be encouraged to keep on asking and to keep on seeking and to keep on knocking does not necessarily mean keep on asking for the same thing. Keep on seeking the same thing or keep on knocking for the uh, for the same thing, because it's entirely possible. And I believe it is the point of this passage in this context that it means keep on asking, but ask for this and ask for that and ask for this and ask for that as you have need and so on. This is what is understood as asking with many pauses or breaks at frequent times. But what if it did mean keep on asking for the same thing, keep on seeking the same thing, keep on knocking for the same thing? That is also a biblical prayer. Paul kept on asking that the thorn be removed from his flesh. In other words, we keep asking for the same thing until we get a clear answer. Persistent prayer is a biblical encouragement. But what if what what do we do? If we don't seem to get an answer, the explanation for the need of persistent prayer must finally rest in what God's delays are in answering or not answering prayers do for us. First of all, they are the seed of divine discipline. Maybe he doesn't answer for a while to see if we're going to keep on praying. The reason that God has told us to ask for the same thing over and over is often to discipline us and test our sincere desire to receive that particular blessing or the thing that we're praying about. Another reason that God calls upon us to pray with persistence is that they deepen the channel of our spiritual life. Constant prayer leads to a deepening of our relationship to the Lord and brings us into more fruitful union with him. Many of you have 
had the experience of praying for others for years and years. I know in my case, I prayed for members of my family for their salvation for many, many years. Some of them have died without any evidence outwardly of having come to faith in Jesus. But God weighs the evidence inwardly and he gives the final judgment. But I'm sure that I have been blessed through those prayers because many times my communion with God has has been around those petitions. In other words, you find yourself getting closer to God, not only by praying about issues that you have in your life, but praying for others. When you learn of their difficulties or even when praying for the salvation of loved ones and friends. This persistence also affords us occasion for rising above our experiences and our emotions and the physical trials into the heavenly scope of patience, faith, and hope under the wings of our great God. So persistent prayer is pleasing to our God. Well, we come to the last half of of each one of these clauses in which we have the results of prayer. The promise is fulfilled when the promise is obeyed. In each instance, the correspondence between command and promise is exact. In verse 8, the promises are strengthened by the use of the word everyone. It says, for everyone that asks, receives. Now, this is an expression that emphasizes the certainty That we will receive an answer to prayer. It is as if God has signed for us a blank check and called upon us to write in the amount that we like. Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it will be opened to you. And if you have any question about the fact that this is for you, he says, for everyone that asks, receives. In other words, this is something for everyone who are his. And by the way, for our prayers, there is no better way to pray to God than to take his promises and return them to him in prayer. Our prayer is most effective when it is the reversal of the promises of God. I don't know of any better way than to take God's words, his own word, form it into an argument and then return it to him. It worked for Moses. God was getting ready to destroy the nation after their sin. Moses says, but Lord, you told Abraham that you was going to raise up his seed. God gave Moses the opportunity to have his seed raised up. And the nation to come from him. But he says, no. Remember what you told Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Remember the promises that you made to them. And in a sense, you know, the Lord said, you're right, Moses. And so the Lord answered that prayer because Moses took what God said and formed an argument to pray back to God in order that Israel would not be destroyed. I encourage you, read the Psalms, memorize the Psalms, get down on your knees and pray those Psalms back to the Lord. And so I say again, prayer is most effective when it is the reversal of the promises of God. That is why in our prayer life, it is so important that we study scriptures and we know uh, uh, the prayers of scripture so that we may bring them back to God. Now, At this point in the text, an argumentation is introduced by our Lord. In the eighth verse, he gives the scriptural reason. The reason for prayer is that it is simply sure to be answered. Why should we not pray if he has promised the answer to our prayers? He always answers prayers in one of three ways. You've probably heard. Yes, no, or wait. Prayers by the saints are always answered. And so that should be an encouragement and a a motivation 
to pray. His words here are an expression of the same promise given by John in first John chapter five, 14, when he said, now this is the confidence that we have uh, in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. If we ask anything according to his will, that blank check I re- referenced a minute ago, that blank check is within the boundaries of his will. <laughs> we can't just ask for anything that's not within his will and expect God to answer that or to get a yes answer on at least. This is the same kind of confidence that Paul expresses when he states, but my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. So we have kind of a threefold court of our Lord, Paul and John, and they all urge us to pray because our prayers will be answered. A godly man once said, remember, nothing lies outside the reach of prayer except that which lies outside the will of God. And how thankful we ought to be that there are some things which lie outside the will of God for us. That is why when we don't get an answer we want, we should not be dejected over it. How many have prayed and God didn't answer that prayer and later on you said, thank you, Lord, that you didn't answer that prayer? You know, I'm praying for this woman to be my wife. And then later on down the road, I'm like, oh, God, I I thank you that you didn't give her to me as a wife. (laughs) Thank God he he doesn't answer all of our prayers. And so we shouldn't be dejected when God says no, when there's a clear answer of no. We should remember that God has a degree, a decretive will, and he is not going to violate his will. And that is the best thing for us. We do not get the answer we want. We can be sure that that is the best thing for us. And we can praise him for the fact that he didn't give it to us. Now, Jesus argues logically Having said that, he states in the 9th, 10th, and 11th verses a very simple kind of argument. And it brings out the fact that our heavenly father is sure to be counted upon more than any earthly father. Take, for example, a son. A son who comes to his father and asks for bread. Will his father give him a stone? The reason that he has uh, these two together, bread and stone, is because in ancient times, a loaf of bread looked very much like a stone. Then if the child comes and asks for fish, will he be given a serpent? He says, and you being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much shall your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So the argument is very simple. If a son asks for something that he needs, he surely can expect that he will receive that from his father. He will not receive that which is evil. We may then conclude that if evil men give good gifts to their children, our heavenly father will certainly give good things to the to his children who ask him. One man has said, if you wish to know how the almighty thinks of you, listen to the beating of your own heart and add to it infinity. That particularly applies to a loving father who has children or who has who who has had children and who knows that when children come to him, it is the desire of the father's heart to meet their need. If you are a father out there, if you are a loving father. You know, when your child comes to you and you know that it is a need, you are more than happy. You are overjoyed to meet the need. If you think a father has a desire to meet the need of his children and a natural loving father certainly does, then look into the heart. Look into your heart, you fathers, and add to it infinity. And that is how God feels about his children. Well, at this point, if you don't know, I hope you're asking, at least in your mind, what are the good gifts that the Lord Jesus speaks about? 
Well, there are some things that he has spoken about in this sermon that are good things. He has said something about your kingdom come. Are we really waiting on the kingdom of God? I know it's become a church word. You know, we're building up the kingdom. But Jesus is clear in the Sermon on the Mount that an earthly kingdom is coming. Are we really waiting on that? Are we really praying? Do we really know what we're praying when we're saying thy kingdom come? We're asking God to bring in everlasting righteousness by establishing his kingdom upon earth. Amen. So that's a good thing to pray for the kingdom. That's certainly within his will. <laughs> Your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. That is certainly a good thing. How many look forward to that day? Yes. When his will on earth is done as it is in heaven. That's everlasting righteousness. Give us this day our daily bread. That's a good thing. He's promised us that. Forgive us our debts, our sins as we forgive our debtors. That's a good thing. Lead us not into temptation is a good thing. There are things that he will give us. The answers to these petitions are always yes answers. Furthermore, in the latter part of chapter six, we've had great stress upon the fact that the father supplies all our needs. He will give us food. He will give us clothing. He will give us everything that we need. Why should we worry concerning these things? And if we have further assurance that our heavenly father will give us good things much more than an earthly father. Why is it that we Christians are so filled with anxiety and worry over the future? But let me stop here because we don't really need the physical things that the people in those days needed. Anybody in here worried about the next meal? I know I'm not. <laughs> Anybody in here worried about if they're going to get water today? Or if they will have a change of clothing or if they will even have a house to go to. That's what their great needs were. And so that's what they were praying about. And it, and, and it seems to me what we have plenty of. They were praying about. And what they had plenty of. We need to be praying about. What's my point? They were hungry for the word of God. They were thirsty for God. Multitudes followed him. They were persistent in knowing more about God. They didn't have the word of God that, like we have it today. And so they longed for it. They were serious about it. They desired to be uh, uh, spiritually fed and, and have a deeper relationship with the Lord. They had plenty of that. And it seems to me that's what we need to be praying for. One of the things that characterized the godly band of Calvinistic servants, uh, the Calvinistic servants of God in the 16th, 17th and 18th centuries was the priority that they gave to secret communion in prayer. There were two great doctors that characterized men of the past. One, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God and the other. The doctrine of personal godliness and in their personal godliness, it was characterized by prayer. They believed in a sovereign God and they spent their time in prayer because they did believe that God, that their God was sovereign and that he was able to accomplish the things that was upon their hearts, which he had placed there. I heard one of the saints prayer saying, here I am with all that I possess at your feet. I will address you until my bones get tired. Since you give freely, I will not be content with an ordinary measure of grace. Make me as poor and as despised as you desire, but give me spiritual wisdom and give me an unusual knowledge of yourself. Close quote. Now, I believe that I believe that is a great prayer. We ought to persistently pray, Father, give me understanding 
of the scriptures. Give me an unusual knowledge of your word in order that I may more effectively serve you and, and, and also more deeply know you. Oh, Father, give me spiritual wisdom and give me an unusual knowledge of yourself. I heard James say in chapter one, verse five, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach. And it will be given to him. That's another yes answer to a prayer. Lord, I need wisdom. I need wisdom, not only in understanding your word, but I need wisdom in how to respond to the circumstances and issues of life. I want to respond right. I don't want to complain. I want to murmur. I don't want to feel like, woe is me. I want to respond right. And you will find that God will answer that prayer every time. I know that I have resisted much of the teaching of the word of God. But it is my sincere prayer still that he will meet my need in that way. It's no wonder that God worked mightily. Through the praying men of the past and prayer is an engine that the world doesn't know anything about. Now, I find the use of the word stone and serpent very interesting. The fact that he used them, I believe, indicates that we we do think of God as giving us stones and serpents instead of the requests that we desire. What do I mean by that? It's an amazing thing. It's, it's a testimony to the evil of the heart of man that he can actually believe that in the petitions that he give to God, God will give him a serpent or him a stone. Now it is, I, I believe in our heart deep down within an expression of rebellion against God. What am I talking about? Do you pray sometimes and really don't believe God going to answer it? I'm going to pray for it, but I, I, I really don't think I'm going to get what I asked for. We enter very frequently in prayer with that very attitude. He's not going to give it to us. James says further in, in, in verse six of chapter one, after saying, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask and God to give it liberally without reproach. He says in verse six, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. It is an expression of the fact that when we come to God, we expect that he is going to give us instead of bread, a stone. And he's going to give us a serpent instead of fish. There's another interesting theological insight in, in, in the 11th verse. We hear much today about the dignity of man. There is a sense, of course, in which this is a biblical doctrine. We in the sense that we have been made in the image of God. And while the image in us has been marred and distorted by the fall, it's not been destroyed. And if you mean by the dignity of man that we are made in the image of God and there is a kind of reflection of God even in fallen man, then it is possibly permissible to speak about the dignity of man. But I can assure you that expression is not only not in the scriptures, but it is not emphasized in the scriptures at all. The scriptures stress just the opposite. And of course, some have noticed that. But they sought to lay burden on uh, uh, the burden of stress on original sin and guilt and condemnation. They sought to lay that on Paul. Frequently. It's been said that that's the kind of doctrine that Paul preached. I get that a lot. As if to suggest if Paul preached it, then it's not necessary to believe it. It was the expression of Paul as if he is a kind of visionary in Christian doctrine, not realizing that the statements of Paul have the same weight as the statements of any other author of Holy Scripture and have the same weight as the words of our Lord Jesus himself, because they both are given to us by the spirit of God. Well, the facts are. That there is no distinction between the teaching of our Lord and the teaching of Paul. Paul truly believed in original sin. He believed in guilt. He believed in condemnation. He believed in everlasting punishment. But guess what? So did our Lord. Paul believed that man was evil. So did our Lord. 
Because we read in the 11th verse that Jesus says, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly father give good things to them that ask him? He says, if you then being evil, that is our Lord's uh, 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 evaluation of human nature. And it is no different from Paul's quotation of the Old Testament. There is none righteous. No, not one. Well, the ver- verse 12 has been called the golden rule. Someone has commented that it may be a summary of the entire sermon in that it presents the kind of righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. It's, it, it's a well-known fact that the golden rules has some similarities in the language of others. Rabbi Hillel, one of, one of the famous Jewish rabbis said, what is hateful to thee, do not to anyone else. Confucius said, do not to others what you would not wish done to yourself. The difference between the two lies primarily in other realms. In the first place, Confucius and Hillel did not speak those things in the context as we have in the New Testament. They were spoken in context which they uh, become statements about calculated caution to avoid retaliation. It's a very selfish kind of statement or kind of way that they're talking about, Hillel and Confucius. In addition to that, the non-Christians' rules are viewed as one that we are able to fulfill without divine enablement. But Christ speaks of this in a very selfless kind of way. In other words, put others before yourselves. Paul bears that out. We ought to put the interests of others before the interests of ourselves. And guess what? That takes divine enablement. That takes divine enablement. Finally, the non-Christian statement majors on the relationship of man to man and overlooks our relationship to God, which is, of course, a relationship that is beautifully and fully expounded in the Sermon of the Mount. The rules of non-Christians are reflections of what our Lord has said, but they are inadequate reflections of his great expressions. He says, this is the spirit of the law and the prophets. And with this, we are reminded of chapter five, verse 17. Think not that I'm come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Well, as one reads and rereads these verses, the importance of asking becomes prominent. Five times the word ask is used. The multiplicity of its occurrences is an invitation to do just that. Ask. And we should ask with the spirit of desire, uh, of the desire that Jacob had when he prayed. I will not let you go until you bless me. I believe one of the Old Testament writers brought out the point that Jacob in tears as he was clinging to God says, I will not let you go hip out of socket and everything. I will not let you go until you bless me. Jacob wasn't asking for a physical blessing. He was rich. Jacob was asking for a blessing on the inside to change him on the inside to take Jacob out of him and put God in him. I do hope that as you listen to these words, you've been encouraged and prompted to pray, to pray more, to ask. And the natural result follows. He will answer. There's a great stress upon the certainty of answers to prayer. Nine times, I believe, in the verses, an answer to prayer is either stated or implied in this section. And we shouldn't be surprised at the answer. Have you ever been surprised by, by, by an answer? An answered prayer? Well, you're not alone because in Acts chapter 12, you remember Peter was in prison and on death row, his execution was the next day. And the angel freed Peter from prison. And, I, and, and you talk about contentment and, and being okay. It is well with my soul. <laughs> 
Peter was asleep. And the Bible says an angel had to nudge him to get him up. Not just Peter, Peter, get up. Nudged him. Get up. Well, guess what was going on while Peter was in prison? There was a prayer meeting going on at the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark. And Peter had been freed and they was praying, no doubt, for Peter while he was in prison. And so Peter is freed and he's out of prison and 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 he goes and starts to knock on the door. And the Bible mentions her by name. Rhonda comes to the door and when she see Peter. She don't say praise God from whom all blessings flow. She turns and run. Peter's like. And she's running back to them and 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 she says, it's Peter to these praying saints who's praying for Peter. And sometimes we can pray because we know we are supposed to pray and not really believe or expect God to answer it in the way that we hope it to be answered. Because those same praying saints, when they heard Rhonda or Rhoda say it was Peter, they began to say things like, you're crazy. You're beside yourself, in other words. You've gone mad. What's wrong with your mind? Somebody else said, well, maybe she's seen an angel or a ghost. In other words, they didn't believe that God had answered the prayer the way that they had been praying for. But Peter kept on knocking. Maybe Peter remembered the words of the Lord. Keep on knocking. (laughs) He kept on knocking and finally they opened the door and there was Peter. And the Bible tells me the praying saints were astonished. They were surprised. They were amazed. I've been in that situation. When I prayed for something specifically, God answered prayer. And I said, really? (laughs) They prayed for Peter release. God got him out of prison. And so they don't say we've been expecting you. (laughs) We've been looking for you to show up. The Bible says they were astonished. They were amazed. So answered prayers do surprise us at times. The one great final unanswerable argument for prayer. Why do we pray? Why do we need to pray and pray a lot? Jesus prayed. Of all the people who did not seem to need to pray. The Lord Jesus is the one. After all, he is earth's divine and sovereign Lord. And yet. The characteristic thing of the ministry of our of our Lord is that he went and spent long hours on the mountain praying to God. He got away from everybody. And prayed to God, have you ever turned the TV off? Turn the radio off, turn your phone off (laughs) so that there would not be any interruptions and just pray to God. We need to do that more often. We need to do that more often because we are distracted by a whole lot of things. How about this one? Trying to pray at night in the bed and you start out, Heavenly Father, I thank you. You're holy, blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden you wake up the next morning and say, I was praying. (laughs) No, don't make that the last thing you do when you wore out from everything that you've done selfishly. Spend time with God in your strength when you have the most energy and make a list and pray not to my credit, but I'm just sharing it to to you as brothers and sisters. I've made a list and it's over 100 requests on that list because he says we can ask for anything. And so for some of you sports fans, I think of it like baseball. If, if I got over 100 things on there and about 30 of them are within his wheel, guess what? <laughs> he told me to ask about anything. I've lost my keys at times. And some people say, you don't bother God with that. Yes, I do, because he knows exactly where they are. <laughs> and I've, lo- I've lost my keys and we have a trash 
a little trash can right up under uh, the dresser where I lay my keys sometimes. And obviously, I had took something off the dresser and the keys had went into the trash. And thank God the, 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 the trash wasn't full and didn't need emptying for a couple of days. But we had an extra seven. I'm like, where are the keys? Where are the keys? And I'm saying, Lord, if it's thy will, lead me to the keys. And so my wife goes and get the trash up and she hears a jingle. She says, I found them keys. Well, the Lord led you to those keys. You can pray to God about anything. That's the point. Never think something is too small to pray to God. Everything that concerns you concerns the father. And so the Lord Jesus prayed. He prayed on the mountain. That was characteristic of him. He prayed before he chose his disciples. He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was arrested. He even prayed on the cross of Calvary in his dying hour. His whole life was bathed in prayer. So of all the people who did not, it would seem, need to pray Jesus Christ is the first and foremost. He prayed. How do we think that we can possibly get along without prayer if he, the son of God, could not? Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, seeing that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore, meaning since all of that is true, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. He will answer marriage, finances, trouble on your job, trouble in life, sickness, whatever the case may be. Pray within his will. Pray like the Hebrew boys. I know that you are able. But even if you do not, I know that you're still able. I'm still going to serve you. I'm still going to give you glory. So may God use these simple words to lead you into a deeper experience of the knowledge of God through the word and through prayer. If you're listening to this message and you've never believed on the Lord Jesus you do not have the right to approach God in prayer. If you come to God and come to him with prayer upon your lips by which you enter into relationship to him who has suffered and died for sinners, you shall enter into the life, into the family of God. That means you have a father who answers your prayers. If you are listening and you've never believed in the Lord Jesus, we invite you to put your trust in the one who has died for sinners. And dying for sinners, he has laid the foundation for eternal life, the forgiveness of sin, the relationship of the priest before God. And he calls upon you to believe. May God, through the spirit, bring you to faith and trust in him. And may the first expression of the new life, which brings with it faith, be behold, he prays. May God bless you. Ooh, yep. <laughs> I'm on the leash, right? All right, so how many of you were encouraged to pray? That'd be everybody. Well, then it was worth being here. If you go home confident that when you pray to God, he hears you, then it was well worth what you heard this morning. So thank you, Elder Wren, for being here coming all the way from Dallas to bring us that message. I think we needed to hear that.